Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are getting to, it's some good old fun music talk, honestly, and debate with allmusic.com staff writer, Mark Deming. Now, if you're like me and you spend a great deal of your online life on the allmusic.com website, surely you've seen the name Mark Deming on there. We've had Stephen Thomas Erlewine on here. I'm just going to slowly work my way through all of them. All those names that we see on there eventually. Anyway, Mark's been at it for a while, and I just like to get into it with, with music critics about how they become what they are, what their process is, what their day-to-day routine is, and then, of course, debating you know who's good, who isn't, who's overrated, who's underrated. We do all of that in here. Um, I Here, I'm torn because... I love music critics, and uh, I love that they're out there, you know, fighting the good fight. However, my issue with so many of them is that I feel like their likes and the artists that they, all of them seem to like the same things, I guess is what I'm saying. And to me, there are artists and genres of music out there that are sorely underrepresented, and I've never understood why. Whether it's Rolling Stone, whether it's a guy like Mark, or a guy like Stephen Thomas Erlewine, yes, these people have impeccable taste, there's no question about it. But I'm always curious, why why are certain bands that I think are really good marginalized? Why is that? And why do we place a higher value on certain artists over other artists? And so I kind of get into it. In fact, I don't know Mark at all, so I had to kind of pull back and be a little more gentlemanly than I wanted to. Not because Mark's a great guy, it's super nice and everything. I just, you know how it is. When you start debating music, you're, you know, you you start, you're drooling down your fangs, in your mouth. Anyway, uh, so I hope you guys will enjoy this conversation. I think it's a lot of fun. Also, as we do when we bring on people who are not musicians on the show, we like to let them pick five or six of their favorite songs. And so he will explain why you're listening to what you're listening to right now, here in a minute. He called me from his home in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Okay, so first and foremost, I asked you ahead of time if you wouldn't mind bringing five or six songs uh, with you that are favorites of yours. We're going to kick this whole thing off with your very first choice. What would that be? The song that unfortunately made me whatever I am today, I would have to say is probably Wipeout by the Safaris. <laughs> I was, I remember I was a little kid. I was in uh, the family room, sitting at the kitchen table and coloring. My older brother, Steve, and one of his friends, they went into the living room. They put a record on the family stereo, turned it up really, really loud, and I just heard this insane cackling followed by this huge mass of drums and uh, echoey guitars. And I was immediately fascinated. I was like, wow, what is this? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, you know, I mean, that was the thing that for, for good or ill that, you know, that was the point where all of a sudden I became fascinated with rock and roll and I haven't stopped being fascinated with it since. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to start anywhere, I think, you know, we'd have to start with that. (laughs) It's so interesting you say that because a song like that, first of all, I should say I read your bio. I didn't know there was a bio for you on the All Music site, but I read it. So I'm a little bummed because now I know the answers to some of these questions, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Um, oh, that's okay. I mean, okay, good. Well, I find it interesting that this song means so much to you because you, I think you could, would admit that in this day and age, that song is like wallpaper. We've heard it in so many movies and commercials and in the background of so many things. It's kind of 
it's counterintuitive to think that at one point that was a very fresh song that was really impacting people and influencing them in a real way. And you're one of those people. Do you find yeah. that? You know, I, I, I think that's true to a sense, but at the same time, um, I think that's kind of part of the process with mm. what happens with a lot of uh, with a lot of pop songs. I mean, yeah. you know, we certainly, I mean, people still love the Beatles, but I don't think that, I don't think really it's possible for us to listen to their stuff today mm-hmm. and really be completely aware of just how much they changed the zeitgeist mm-hmm. uh, when they first came along. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, or, or like... Uh, I, re- I remember a few years ago, it was like uh, a buddy of mine who was uh, in a couple of punk rock bands. I remember, I remember he said, he said, you know, I remember when I was in high school, I thought Stiff Little Fingers was the loudest, angriest thing that anybody <laughs> could possibly do. Because, you know, I listen to the, that now, and it sounds, they sound like pop songs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very true. <laughs> you know, it's like time yeah. and context, you know, just changes things. But on the other hand, I mean, if the, if the work is good, yeah. You know, it you know, it, it continues to signify in one way or another. Good. Wow, that's fascinating. Okay. I'm curious I wonder how many other people would have that song as being kind of the turning point in their life too. That's good pick. Well, you never I guess you know, the thing is like you you never know. It's you know Yeah. You you can't always predict uh, exactly what is the thing that uh, is going to just come along and suddenly shake your consciousness and make sure. you uh, think differently about things. Yeah. My first, and I might interject my own answers to some of these once in a while, if that's okay. Um, oh, certainly. Uh, my first favorite song that I remember would have been uh, Celebration by Cool and the Gang. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm 45, so I was born in 73, and I think that song came out in like 79, 80, and that's right around the time I'm starting to pay attention to that there's a, you know, a radio in the car and it plays songs that are fun, and they sometimes you'll hear the same song you know, multiple times, and if you wait in that anticipation to hear it. So I think Celebration was probably my first favorite song, but the one that did to me what Surfaris did for you, I think is Let's Dance by David Bowie, because, and I and I remember the exact thing, I was on an airplane, and you know, back in the old days, you'd be on airplanes, and you'd have those pla- chunky plastic headphones with the plunger cord that would go into the seat oh, so yeah. you could listen. Yeah, and uh, I was listening to Let's Dance on there, and the part when it gets to tremble like a flower and his voice cracks, flower, you know? Yeah. And I... Tremble like a flower. Yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And (laughs) it was so... That was so provocative to me that somebody could get away with their voice cracking on a pop song that I would hear on the radio like that. Like who? That's that's totally against the rules. You're not allowed to do that, you know. And uh, Bowie would go on to be kind of my favorite, my number one, really of all time. But I think that was the moment when my brain opened up to there being, you know, uh, opportunities or options or expansions within music that they could go in all different directions it doesn't have to follow one rule you know what i mean oh yeah absolutely uh anyway okay so let's talk about when you became you i um you're from michigan where are you now ypsilanti uh i live in ypsilanti right now which is uh next door to ann arbor i work in ann arbor um I was born in Jackson, Michigan, mm-hmm. and uh, lived uh, for a long time in Lansing, Michigan. I think I, I spent the vast majority of my life um, here in the Mitten State. 
Okay. Okay. Around and about. I uh, I grew up Mormon, and you know those Mormon guys go on their missions. You know, you right. see Mormon missionaries. And I got sent to Michigan on my Mormon mission. Oh, and where in Michigan did you go? I was in Lansing. I was in. Let's see. I went from Lansing to Big Rapids. Stephen Thomas Erlewine and I had a nice chat about that. I'm going to call back to that in a second. Big Rapids to Muskegon to Oscoda to Kalamazoo. No, to Grand Rapids. Uh, Kalamazoo and then Charlotte. Oh wow! Yeah, actually, I lived in Charlotte for a little while too. You so did? You, you hit me with two of those. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh, actually, technically, we were in Eaton Rapids, but we were right. Uh, right by Charlotte. We went yeah. to Charlotte more often than we did Eaton Rapids. That was uh, when I, you know, when I was married to my ex-wife Gwen. Okay, when would that have been? That would have been about two thousand six to two thousand ten. Okay. Okay. I li- when we when were you on your mission? Uh, ninety two to ninety four. Okay, yeah, that yeah, I would have been. I was living in Lansing around that time. Wow, so. yeah, I was there. Um, yeah, Eaton Rapids is a cute little town. You know, I liked it out there. I mean, I didn't get to. You know, I was doing. Other, I wasn't in, in, enmeshed in the culture or anything like that. But it was a <laughs> cute little place. You know. Um, okay, so did you now? I know that. Allmusic.com was kind of born out of Big Rapids, the Ferris State University crowd, I believe. I think Thomas, Tom, I, I, it's still hard for me to call him Tom when I've read <laughs> Stephen Thomas Erlewine, that byline every day for the last like 15 years. But anyway, Tom. I, I'm, I'm exactly the opposite. Whenever I see Stephen Thomas Erlewine, I think, wait, he's just Tom. What is this? <laughs> see, <laughs> I'm sure. So because, Tom, you know, I, you know, it was like, I mean, I see his byline all the time, but I've also, I mean, you know, I, yeah. I've, you know, ever, you know, I started working uh, for All Media Guide in uh, 1999 mm. uh, when they first moved to Ann Arbor. Oh. And uh, I've known Tom pretty much since. So, you know, it's just like he just said, hey, I'm Tom. Hi, I'm Mark. So <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, I have the opposite problem. So, yes. so that's how. Now, where were were you writing for? Like your high school paper or college, or how did they find you? How did you oh, yeah. get that job? Well, um, I had started writing uh, about music when I was in high school. You know, I think uh, I had been kind of a, a geeky music guy um, pretty far back. I think after hearing um, after hearing Wipeout, I think one of the uh, really seminal events for me was uh, my oldest brother Steve. When he moved out of the house, when I was about ten or eleven, uh, he left me a huge stack of old singles that he had collected over the years. And I think it's like it was just kind of you know a real broad spectrum of like just what was what was good that you heard on the radio, you know, from about, you know, 1963 or 64 onward. I mean, there was all the major uh, Beatles and Rolling Stones hits, the Kinks, the Yardbirds, uh, you know, some American stuff, like, again, like that Surfaris record, uh, you know, the, you know, the Stondells, stuff like that, uh, Dylan, the Birds, uh, Wilson Pickett, uh, Joe Tex, James Brown. It was just, you know, a lot of, yeah. you know, a few, like, oddball uh, Michigan things, and uh, it was just, and it was funny, because, like, I, through most of high school, I really didn't listen to a whole lot of the things my peers did. I, uh, there was just, it was, 
you know, I graduated from high school in 1978. I was born in 1960. Mm-hmm. And uh, that period of the 70s, that was not a very inspiring time in a lot of ways for rock and roll. You had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, particularly if you're particularly if you're going to high school in Saginaw, Michigan, there was just <laughs> a lot of the really bad uh, arena rock bands that were populating the airwaves at that time, like you know, REO Speedwagon and uh, Kansas and mm-hmm. uh, Sticks and things like that. Foreigner, and that's right. that's the oh yeah, Foreigner, yeah. That's that stuff just never spoke to me. About mm-hmm. the only band that really had currency with my peers in high school that I really genuinely liked was uh, Aerosmith. I always I always thought they were mm-hmm. they were cool. Partly because I one of the things I always liked about them was they had a sense of humor. Yeah, which an awful lot of those other bands did not. Okay. But uh, you know, but when I was in high school, I mean, I you know, I there was definitely stuff I liked that I was listening to, and I started writing about music for the high school newspaper. And uh, when I uh, went to when I went to college, I studied journalism at Michigan State University. Mm-hmm. And uh, after a few years, um, I got on the staff of MSU student newspaper, the State News. Mm. And uh, I started there uh, writing about uh, music and film for them and eventually became uh, editor of the entertainment section by the mm-hmm. time that I graduated in 1984. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. And it was that all along? Was your plan always to be a print journalist of some kind? Yeah. I, I never really... When I originally uh, started doing this, I, I really liked writing about... Uh, I really liked writing about music... I really enjoyed it. I really wasn't expecting that I was going to have a career doing that. Mm-hmm. It just sort of seemed to, you know, the breaks just seemed to come that way. I mean, after I graduated from high school, actually, I it took me a really long time before I got, you know, steady work writing. Uh, yeah. I, um, you know, I, I had a bunch of really, you know, odd, strange jobs mm-hmm. uh, for several years. But then I, uh, just on a whim, I submitted a couple of record reviews to a community paper in Lansing, where I was living at the time, called the Capital Times. Mm. Um, if Jeff Garrity, the editor, is listening to this, hi Jeff, thank you again. <laughs> uh, that really got me back into writing, and I was, uh, yeah, I was, you know, one of their uh, staff writers for uh, I think close to ten years. Wow. I mean, you know, if most of that it was a part-time gig, but uh, after a period, they, um, you know, they were stepping up production and. Uh, Jeff needed a full-time uh, writer, so uh, yeah, that was the first time I had a gig writing full-time. Like that's all I—that's all I did, and uh-huh. I was able to actually pay the pay the rent and buy the groceries with that. Was it always entertainment focused, or were you doing like city council meetings and stuff like that? Uh, I was doing a lot of like other short features about things, mm. not so much like that. But I mean, I definitely did the, like. Uh, personal profiles, uh, like a lot of uh, little previews of upcoming events, you know, things at the library, uh, you know, there's like some women who collect lace have a club and they're doing mm. a show, you know, odd little things like that. But yeah, I think, yeah, the, how I got my foot in the door there was uh, doing uh, music writing. Okay, okay. Let's go to track number two. Pick a second song for us. What are we going to hear now? One, I think of all the uh, American groups of the 60s, one of my very, very favorites was always The Birds. And uh, I think my, one of my very favorite songs of theirs is Why. Keep saying no to her Since she was a baby Keep saying no to her Not even baby I'm why. 
on the flip side of uh, Eight Miles High. I'm kind of of the opinion that that is the greatest psychedelic single of all time. <laughs> the why so, is yeah. the greatest or Eight Miles High is the greatest? I think the single is the greatest. You okay. know, I mean, oh, if you had, to, sides, if you had yes. to boil American Psychedelia down to one single, that's the one I would pick. Okay. Ooh, interesting. You know, the Birds, talk about a band that probably doesn't get as much credit as they deserve anymore, especially, you know, um, they, they deserve to be up there and name-checked more often. Good for you for picking a bird song. I love it. Oh, that. I love, yeah, I love the birds. And it, I think it's really funny that, you know, again, like I said, I don't think they really get as much credit, you know, as they deserve, particularly considering, you know, how how really, you know, how really unusual they what they were doing was at the time. They were mm-hmm. really the... They were really the first American band that really seemed to really pick up on what the uh, British groups were doing uh, after the British invasion came in. They were the ones that really you know, stylistically I- embrace all that stuff and did it really, really well. And not in a sense like they were copying anybody. They didn't. Yeah. They definitely had their own sound. But, you know, well, I, mean, I mean, Roger McGuinn has, has said very much so that he heard the Beatles and that completely turned his head around about, oh, we can do things like this. Yeah. I always thought it was hilarious. Apparently, he and David Crosby went to see the Beatles A Hard Day's Night because they wanted to know how to be in a rock band, and so they saw it and they took notes. And <laughs> really? Oh, that's great. They said, okay. They said they liked the movie, but they also think, like, okay, like, you know, this is kind of the, you know, we'll use this as our instruction manual. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, I think McGuinn had said, actually, he saw that, like, there was one scene in there where uh, I think John was playing a uh, Rickenbacker 12-string, and he said, Oh, because he had been playing a 12-string acoustic for a lot of time, but then he found out, oh, Rickenbacker makes these. That would be cool. And, of course, the rest is history. There it is. Wow. That's great. And, you know, and they they really, uh, they changed a lot, but I really think Mm -hmm. also, like, the later uh, period stuff um, with uh, Clarence White on guitar, again, that's just, you know, it's really, it's completely different creative direction for them, but the songs are still great, and mm-hmm. man, that band can play. Yeah. Are you a fan of bands like Teenage Fan Club and stuff that seems so steeped in uh, and influenced by bands like the Birds? Oh, yeah, I really, yeah, I like those guys a lot. Good. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. Okay, just curious. Well, good. That's a good one. Uh, now, as far as print journalism, I was going to tell you, I, I also got my degree in print journalism. I went to BYU and um, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. I I had wanted to be a newspaper man, but I want specifically like you to write about features or entertainment or music or whatever and uh, or and or get into the music business. And I graduated around 2000 or something like that. And uh, of course, neither of those industries really exist anymore. And so I, I laugh about that because I backed 
like the absolute two worst horses growing up. You know, I put I went all in on the two things that I wanted to do with my life and neither of them are even really around anymore. It's sad. Well, I know. Actually, I, I occasionally joke with my friends that I'm uh, I'm probably one of the very last rock critics in America that actually has health insurance. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. So let's me and th- Tom and the other people at, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, that write for TiVo were about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I uh, it's again, I, I I don't know that more than two or three days have gone by where I haven't looked at all music dot com in the last almost 20 years, you know, it's a, it's a constant part of my life. And especially I'm now really that... happy to be, I'm really happy to be associated with them. Cause I genuinely think it, you know, I, I genuinely think it's a valuable resource. I do too. I do too. And, uh, I now, especially every time I hear a new album, I have to go on and rate it. I have to add it to my collection. You know what I mean? It just, yeah. uh, it's an, it's an incredible resource. Put a pin in resources because we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Tell so how you apply. You're writing for the Lansing newspaper for years, and you get to do kind of a lot of the writing that you want. How do you become acquainted then with all music? Well, um, there was a friend of mine, Mark West, hmm. really nice guy. Again, if you're listening, Mark, hi. Uh, my friend Mark <laughs> West ran a really good comic book shop. Ah, and. Um, in uh, Lansing called uh, Curious Comics. It was affiliated with a really good used bookstore called uh, Curious Books, which is still open. The comic book store, unfortunately, is not. Okay. And uh, one of the guys that worked with worked with uh, Mark at the store was Jason Ankeny. And uh, Jason, um, basically it was kind of funny, Jason read my column in the Capital Times a lot, and I would go in there, and fairly often we would have rather lively arguments about... Uh, the relative merits of whatever I was reviewing, mm-hmm. That. Mm-hmm. but um, you know, uh, you know, Jason eventually uh, left Lansing, and he was writing for All Music for a while. And uh, one day, I went into uh, the store, and Mark told me, "Hey, uh, I got a message from Jason. He said that um, All Music Guide is going to be moving their offices to Ann Arbor, and they're hiring a bunch of people. So you should apply for a job there." He wow. said, "Like you know." Which yeah, so I again I uh, had Jason Ankeny to thank for that. He uh, he was one suggested I apply for that. However, now the funny thing is that I applied for the job, but when I had my interview, um, uh, Michael Erlewine, who at that point was kind of you know he was the head guy there, uh, when he interviewed me, he said you know you know your stuff looks pretty good. Unfortunately, we're pretty much done hiring people for the music site. You know it's it's kind of too bad you don't write about movies because we're still Ooh. using people for that. And I said, well, I do still write about movies. Uh-huh. <laughs> you do? I said, well, yeah, look at the resume, look at the clips. And he went, oh, you do, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Great. So originally, I was actually hired to write for uh, the uh, their companion site, uh, All Movie Guide. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I was I was originally hired to do that, but after I'd been there about a year, I mean, you know, we were all together in the same office, and you just got to know everybody, and I got to be friends with several of the guys in the music department, and, you know, we'd talk about stuff often or not, and I can't remember what it was, but I do remember one week, uh, you know, Tom came over to my desk and said, 
hey, we're really busy with a bunch of stuff. Um, could you write a review on this if you have a little time? <laughs> and I said, sure. And I think after, uh, after a few months, um, they were dividing me uh, three days a week doing uh, work for the movie department and two days a week uh, writing for the music department. I was mm -hmm. the only person there that uh, regularly contributed to both. Wow. Now, what's a what's a typical day in your cubicle like? Are you do you have a stack of assignments? Is it how many articles are you expected to put out in a day? How much time do you personally spend writing these articles? Are they bands you're familiar with, bands you like, bands you don't like? Tell us about the process. Well, there's pro the process by which uh, they divvy out the assignments is that um, about once a week uh, we uh, get a file of we get a file of uh, records that are going to be coming out soon, and we make picks from that. Mm -hmm. Then that goes to um, then that goes to uh, Tim Sandra, who's one of our editors, mm -hmm. and Tim then divvies out the uh, the assignments. Um, that's how they uh, that's how they dole out the record assignments. I mean, usually they try to give you things that. Uh, that you asked for, or at least fall in the broad category of you know what you're familiar with. I mean, I mm -hmm. think I think they know that it's in the best interest of everybody that you know they don't give people too many things that are completely off their radar. They right. don't know or care about. Um, and we have something similar with the uh, with biographies. Um, we again we have a meeting once a week. Uh, we go through uh, what bios uh, the editors need to assign, and uh, we parse that out. Also, generally, if you're reviewing an album, they'll have you uh, do an update on the biography for the artist in question. Mm, okay. Uh, generally, these days, I'm doing about four or five um, album reviews a week, and uh, then there's usually about. Um, Depending on the week, uh, it's usually somewhere between uh, three and six uh, biographies. I mean, complete from top to bottom, and then uh, other the other assignments are uh, updating biographies, or also seeing if uh, you know they're if they're not really updatable, if they're in a position where we just need to scrap them and start mm -hmm. over. I mean, every once in a while you'll get assigned something for an artist that we haven't done anything with their bio in years, and then you look at it like, oh, mm -hmm. that's just kind of, we kind of put a placeholder on that for about 15 years ago. And have a, <laughs> right, <laughs> Like okay. I, um, yeah, like one of my, uh, one of my very, very favorite bands of the uh, 80s and 90s uh, was uh, Game Theory. Mm. And I remember uh, when Omnivore started reissuing the Game Theory catalog, one of the things said, the, the bio we had there, was like, oh, we haven't done anything with this in the longest mm -hmm. time. Which was fun. I got to redo the Game Theory bio because, you know, it needed to be done. Okay, uh, okay. So how... So it, you know, basically that's kind of... Uh, okay. That's basically kind of how the soup gets made in terms of, like, how they divvy out our assignments. How many times do you have to listen to a music or listen to an album before you feel comfortable writing about it? My own personal rule is I like to listen to an album at least twice. Okay. Um, it, but a lot of that is just kind of a matter of the timeline about when we actually get things. Mm -hmm. um, I think in one you know one way that the internet has actually made my job easier is uh, that you do have a lot of labels 
and uh, publicists that are eager to send, are you know perfectly happy to send you a download of that, so you can get those in advance of when the uh, physical copies come in. Right. Okay. Uh, but uh, like I said, a lot of it is you know my our reviews are generally due on a Wednesday, and if uh, you know the you can't get a copy of the album uh, to you until like late in the afternoon on Tuesday, well, you're just going to have to, you know, do what you can. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of, you know, if it's something that, you know, if I get it like a couple of weeks ahead of time, it, it's nice to be able to like, you know, mm-hmm. give it. And also it depends on the album. There are some albums that, you know, frankly, I can listen to them twice and I really think I know everything I need to know about them. Sure. There are others that you have to listen to a long, long time before I think you really... Yeah, you know, before you really get to the bottom of them. Yeah. Like I remember when I was uh I remember when I was writing for the Capital Times, I um I reviewed uh, Automatic for the People by REM. Mm-hmm. I listened to it twice and I didn't like it at all. I think I really? was the one person that gave that a really I I you know, and again, I it's you know, I I can only attribute it to the fact I think in a lot of ways I was hoping for I was hoping for a janglier REM album, mm-hmm. something more like uh, Murmur or Reckoning, and that's not what they did, and I was mm-hmm. just in a fit of pique about that. I mean, de- you know, years later, you know, I listen to it now, and I realize I was completely wrong. It's a brilliant piece of work. Right. But, yeah, just like, you know, I listened to it two times, and that day I just decided, meh, and, hmm. you know. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, yeah, and I, that's one. Whenever anybody asks you, have you ever written a review, or just later on you realize you're completely wrong? That's always my go-to answer. Okay. Yeah, automatic for the people. I thought it, I thought it was stunk. <laughs> that was that's one of my upcoming think, yeah, questions. Yeah, I, I don't think yeah. I've ever been more wrong in my first impression on a yeah, record. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Now, well, I'm going to put a pin in this one too because I want when we get into things that are like overrated or underrated, I'm going to have some deeper questions about this line of thinking, but. You, um, I mean, you really are sort of uh, shaping history, I guess, pop culture history or musical history in the process. Do you ever feel a heavy responsibility or is it like, do you feel free to say what you want to say um, about even a band like R.E.M.? Can you be critical of like a Bob Dylan album if you wanted? Or do you feel like you, uh, history is telling me that I have to be more kinder than I might be otherwise? Oh, no. I mean, I think, well, also, I think, well, particularly if you're dealing with an artist like Bob Dylan, uh, he's somebody whose career has definitely had peaks and valleys. And uh, I think you can acknowledge, you know, the brilliance of uh, bringing it all back home, Highway 61 Revisited and Blonde on Blonde, which I believe that's the best 18 months that Mm -hmm. any artist in the history of rock and roll has ever had. I mean... If you you know you had made one album as good as any of those, you would be extraordinarily right. fortunate. And he did three in a year and a half. That's pretty amazing to think yeah. about. Yeah. You know, when you have somebody that you know that does that, you know, over the course of their career, yeah, there was also an album like Self Portrait, or uh, you know, something like you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Empire Knocked Out Loaded or, or yeah. Pardon. I, I just threw Empire Burlesque out there, but not yeah, that it. one again. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, that, that's, yeah, that's not a really good record. Right. I mean, you know, it's like nobody, you know, nobody's perfect. Everybody somewhere down the line screws up. I mean, I, um, like one of my very, very favorite artists of all time is Lou Reed, and right. Lord knows there are several Lou Reed albums that just stink on 
like uh-huh. not good. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, you know. Yeah, something like Sally Can't Dance isn't a good album at all, but on the other hand, I don't think there are a whole lot of people that have ever made a record as good as, uh, like, The Blue Mask. Well, yeah, we're going to... So it's just, I mean, the thing is, like, you know, the bottom line is, you know, I think you have to be truthful. If you listen to an album and your reaction is, this just isn't good, well, that's kind of what you have to tell people. Yeah, okay. But, like, the reason I'm asking about this stuff specifically, and we, we might get back to Lou Reed in a little bit. For instance, sure. today, earlier today, I was listening to uh, Bob Dylan's am- album Tempest. And yeah. it's a it's a later work, obviously. And he, you know, it's okay. He's croaking basically through it all, which is what he does in most albums now. And I'm thinking, does anyone out there have the balls to call Bob Dylan out on something like this? Or are we all just collectively at this stage he's in his 70s we're just uh, we're so grateful to have bob we don't care if this stuff is lesser or croakier or derivative or whatever it's just nice to have bob out there i feel like it's some you know these artists you talk about they they start strong and then there's that fallow period that we talked about especially with dylan somebody like that and then when they bounce back the narrative of somebody like Bob Dylan becomes, we well, we can't be too overly critical because he's a national treasure. We're lucky to have him, which to me just means that no one's being honest. But I don't know if, you probably don't feel that way. Um, Let me put it this way. I definitely get what you're saying. I think I like Tempest a little more than you do, but at the same time, I think that basically looking at Bob Dylan's career in the long run, I think Bob really seems to enjoy being inscrutable. Mm-hmm. I think he really enjoys doing things that puzzle his fans periodically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think his recent uh, run of like albums where he just kind of croaks out the songs of Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think he's legitimately doing this because he wants to, but, mm-hmm. you know, I there's a part of me wonders if this is, like, how much this is really what his muse is telling him to do and how much of it is he's just having fun kind of playing with our collective (laughs) opinions of him. I agree. Um, But I think, again, it depends on the artist. I mean, I think there are people who keep making, you know, keep making records and playing shows because I sense they just don't have any idea what else to do with themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are other people that I think are... You know, they keep doing this because they legitimately still have something to say Mm -hmm. and are, you know, you know, are still good at saying it. Like one of the most surprising concerts I saw last year was I've kind of always had a weakness for like a kind of like 60s folky singer songwritery Mm -hmm. stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, um, Buffy St. Marie was playing in Jackson, Michigan, which Mm -hmm. is. You know, again, not that far from here. It was about an hour's drive. And I grew up there, and mm-hmm. uh, it was a theater where I used to see movies all the time, the Michigan Theater, and they've restored it, and they're doing shows there. And Buffy St. Marie was playing there for free. So mm-hmm. I went down there to see the show, and I really had no idea to expect what she was like, you know, live at mm-hmm. this point in history. And she kicked ass. She had really? a rock band with her, and she just delivered a fantastic show. She was really, you know, she was you know, she, her voice was in terrific shape. She was really engaged. She was really passionate. Um, the band was really solid. Uh, she played a great set. I mean, she played the songs that you would expect her to play, but she also played a lot of newer stuff that was really strong. Hmm. 
again, it was like, this is somebody like, I think the vast majority of people, myself included, to be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. I mean, if you ask them what Buffy St. Marie had been doing in the past 15 years, you probably wouldn't <laughs> have much of an answer, right. but no, she, she's still a vital artist. Maybe not as many people are paying attention. Yeah, I think there are definitely people like that out there. And I think particularly when you're somebody like me who, um, you know, somebody in his mid to late 50s, you tend to have a fair amount of assignments who, again, are older artists that, you know, somebody whose music I've grown up with. Mm -hmm. And you definitely notice there are the people who are still making records, it seems, as much out of habit. You know, the craft is fine. You know, there's not that much inspiration in it. But there are also people that are, like... I think Neil Neil Young is a great example of somebody. He actually he's kind of an interesting comparison to Dylan, in that again, a lot, particularly lately, a lot of his records are really inscrutable. It's hard to know yeah. exactly what it is he's thinking about. Particularly the one that he recorded in the little recording booth uh-huh. with Jack White. <laughs> right. It's like I don't know why he's doing this, but at the same time, I think I think he sounds really really engaged with it. Mm-hmm. He's definitely he's. You know, he's doing this because this is something he really wants to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, to a certain degree, I respect that, uh, even even when it's somebody who I don't necessarily like what they're doing. Like, I, I think it's been a long time since we've really gotten a great album, either from uh, Neil Young or from Dylan. Yeah. But I'm glad that they're still out there doing what they do. Yeah. Everything you just said about Dylan, I also am starting to apply to Lou Reed. And so I'm I'm a fan of Lou Reed's too. But if I, late the last year or so, I've started to kind of put my fandom under a microscope. What is it about Lou that I really like? Because, of course, I love the Velvet Underground. That stuff is bulletproof. And there's one or two uh, Lou solo albums. For me, it's more Transformer that I think is really great. Um, but... Do we love Lou because we love Lou's music? Because there is so much garbage in there. Or do we love Lou because we love Lou's spirit? Do we love that Lou is out there trying and doing different things and um, he's taking risks and he's an artist and he's true to his artistry? All of that is very noble, but that doesn't mean that he's making good music. And if you listen to a lot of his stuff, and maybe, maybe someone, see, this is, one thing I didn't tell you when we started to talk is we might argue about a few things because oh, I get okay. I get really which is part of the fun, but I get really put off by the rock intelligentsia always kind of telling us the same things are great, like Exile on Main Street or the replacements or whatever. Yes, these things are great, but where's the creativity? And Lou Reed is one of these people who I feel like is vaulted into sainthood basically when the the actual true merits of earning that sainthood aren't exactly there, not musically. Anyone out there, I, I would challenge anyone out there to tell me five Lou Reed albums that they listen to consistently and love through and through. And you can't count Velvet Underground. And I just don't know that there's... Uh, the Blue Mask, uh, New York, uh, Berlin, Transformer... Uh, Sally Can't Dance. No, not Sally Can't Dance. No, Coney Island Baby. That's the one I was thinking. Mm, okay. uh, Street Hassle. There's six right there. Okay. For me, at least. So you you legitimately love those? I uh, yeah. Those are all albums I really love and I really value. Now there are also yeah I agree. There's some really bad albums in Lou's catalog. Again, like uh, um, 
I was thinking like uh, rock and roll heart is just an album that there's really no, you know, there's just nothing there. Uh-huh. Sally can't dance is awful. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of admire the thinking behind metal machine music, but it's uh-huh. pretty much impossible to listen to. Sure. Now, since, of course I think Lou was trying to make a record that was impossible to listen uh-huh. to. Uh-huh. So I guess then it's kind of up in the air if it's like, you know, if you think it's horrible or if it's some weird sort of a masterpiece, but yeah. no, I mean, look, you know, no offense, man. It just does, Lou, Lou is a very, very important artist for me. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah, again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I don't argue it for a moment. There's a lot of crap albums in his catalog, but I also think that the good ones are truly amazing. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think there are really, really some really great, really deeply moving albums in, in his catalog. Yeah. I just, uh, I feel like there are artists out there who dine out on their sainthood for the rest of their lives because of a couple of bright moments, deservedly. I'm not, they deserve that, but do they deserve that same level of sustained sainthood forever? As you're listening to Set the Twilight Reeling or uh, Lulu or whatever, one of these latter days, Ecstasy or something like that, are we still talking about a great artist here? Are we talking about a guy who maybe he's past his prime? And even saying that, that sounds sacrilege by saying it, but we have to face the fact that it's true sometimes, even for our favorite artists, you know? Well, I will say that I I do have something to say about, Lu, about Lulu, and this is one thing that really bugged me about the response to that. I fully understand why a lot of people did like that album. It's very, very flawed, and also, in a way, it's a little bit like uh, Metal Machine music in that I think Lou was going for something that was purposely very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was deliberately making an album that's kind of hard for people to deal with, and uh, he didn't buffer that in any way. However, one thing that really bugged me uh, was... Before the album came out, it seemed like the minute it was announced that Lou Reed was making an album with Metallica, everybody just was going on about that this was the worst idea in the history of the world and this was going to be the worst album ever made, Mm -hmm. and nobody made any attempt to deviate from the narrative on that. Like, I remember there was a, I remember there was a kind of a big uh, brouhaha in uh, the uh, mid-2000s because uh, I think it was... uh, Blender was the magazine, I think. They had uh, reviewed a uh, Black Crows album, and it came out that they actually they had reviewed it uh, based only on like uh, two tracks that had been mm. like uh, posted on um, that had been posted on a uh, online retailer's site. You know, mm. they hadn't actually listened to the whole yeah. album, okay. and then they reviewed that. Well. There were there was a huge number of people who were basically reviewing Lulu based on the thirty seconds of the first track that was posted on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, I, there were mm-hmm. reviews of the album based on that, and I think that was just an album that, for whatever reason, everybody got caught up in the zeitgeist and everybody decided it was the worst album ever made. And mm-hmm. it's certainly not. I mean, I don't blame anybody for having a hard time with that album, but at the same time, I think. I really respect it because I think it was something that both Lou Reed and Metallica were really stepping outside of their comfort zone mm-hmm. by working with one another and doing something that, you know, that they might not have done otherwise. And it's kind of funny because it, it seemed to me like Metallica really removed themselves from that 
And that bugged me because, I, frankly, I admired them a lot for doing yeah. that. That was mm-hmm. not something that was a lot of their fans were going to like jump up and down about, yay, they're making it out with Lou Reed. Not at all, but at the same time, they thought there was, you know, a possibility to do something there. They gave it a try, and you know, I, I think, I say, hats off to them for that. I mean, yeah. you no, know, you, you know, I mean, it beats them trying to make the Black album over and over again, mm-hmm. like, you know, mm-hmm. which is something they've been doing for ages. Right. Okay. So if why make another album over and over again? I think they'd be better off trying to do Ride the Lightning. But that's good point. That's just <laughs> I'm with you on that. So, but let so this inscrutability that we're talking about. Why do you think it is that critics? and academics value inscrutability over like pleasure why is why is bob dylan and lou reed's and neil young's inscrutable nature where so, there's high highs and there's very low lows why is that more valuable than a band like say in excess which don't laugh at me i love in excess and they i'm a child of the 80s so those those kinds of bands mean a lot to me there are three or four in excess albums that are start to finish pretty flawless if you ask me and they're pleasurable to listen to and they don't take art these are going these strange artistic directions that don't work they worked very hard to make uh excellent pop rock songs time in and time out and they nailed it over and over again why is what they do not as valuable as the neil youngs of the world that are throwing out every every strange thought or idea they ever have why? That's what I want to know. Well, that's that is an interesting question. And first, one thing I um, I think you like the records more than I do, but I have to say I I remember once seeing NXS live, and anytime anybody says anything, I always always say they were a fucking brilliant live band. They are. And yeah, and through and through. Michael Hutchins was a hell of a front man. Yeah. I mean, I I saw them once um, opening for Adamant, and they totally blew Adamant off the stage. Mm. They, you know, they they were really they they were legitimately a fantastic live band, and they made some really really good records. So yeah, I, I absolutely get what you're saying about okay. that. Okay. Also, for the record, I have a friend that did photography for them for a while, and uh, Jane always said that they were really sweet guys. They good. were really really fun good. to work with. So yeah. Good. good, you know, good people, good band. I do. It's kind of hard to say why that is. I one thing I will say is that I do think that they were very, very good, and they made really, really good records. But at the same time, like, it is true that like somebody like Neil Young is kind of inscrutable, and it's hard to know what you're going to get from them. But in a way, that's kind of that's part of what makes them interesting. I mean, there are a lot of artists that I really, really like, but I pretty much know what the record is going to sound like. Mm-hmm. You know, they kind of do something very similar each time, True. and they're very good at it, and it's something that's very, very pleasurable to me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they very rarely surprise me. And I do think that there's a lot, at least for me, of value in an artist that's willing to surprise me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I honestly think, like, uh, you know, Kick is a fantastic album, but at the same time... You know, it was a really, really great, beautifully crafted piece of work. But at the same time, it doesn't hit me emotionally the same way something like uh, Tonight's the Night or Time Fades Away or my other favorite Neil Young albums do. Now, this is just me exactly why it is that with, you know, the whole rock canon. I don't know. There are plenty of bands that, like, I think, you know, people absolutely love and I really don't get 
why they do. I name one. Uh, Radiohead. Oh, really? Okay. You, you know, they're. I don't. I'm, and I would not for a minute say that they're bad. They're very, very good at what they do. But I just there's nothing about their work that engages me to the point that when I hear people tell me they're the most important band in the world, I, I don't find myself thinking. Mm. Really? <laughs> uh, so none of their stages. I can think about twenty bands that engage me about you know sure. more than them. But they uh, again, they evolve, and there's so many. I'm not really. I'm a moderate Radiohead fan. I would say just as I'm a moderate Neil Young fan, and uh, so but they they're there is such a swath or a, or a um, span uh, that, of ground that they cover on their albums. Do you not like any of them? Do you not think any of them are very good? Or can you see there's maybe a sweet oh, spot? No, no. I mean, I, I, like I said, I'm not saying they're bad. Okay. I'm saying that I don't think they're as good as other people think. Got it. Okay. They're one of those things where yeah. it's something where... Everybody in the world tells me that you know they're like one of the most important bands in the world. And I go really because uh -huh. I'm not I'm not hearing it. I'm hearing a very good band, but I'm not hearing ones that's that exceptional. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. But that's just you know. Yeah. One thing, one thing I do want to throw in here somewhere is I I don't consider myself like that. My views are sac sacrosanct. I'm mm -hmm. not somebody who thinks that. You know, I, I'm an oracle who knows everything. I'm, you know, basically I'm just some dude who listens to an awful lot of music and has a lot of opinions about it. I don't necessarily know if mine are better than anybody else's. Mm -hmm. The most I will say is just as somebody who's been obsessively listening to and studying music for a long time, I think my ideas are probably better informed than a lot of people, mm -hmm. but I'm mm -hmm. not going to try to tell anybody that, like, you know, my ideas are better. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, again, there are a lot... You know, there are plenty of bands that, uh, that again, like, you know, I think there are plenty of bands I think are overrated. There are plenty of bands I think are underrated. You know, I think I have kind of my own, uh, my own ideas about these things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, and exactly where that falls into the continuum of uh, rock criticism in general, to be blunt, I don't really think about it that much. Okay. Okay. I'm like, you know, which is no. I mean, I think there's definitely a conversation to be had about that, but it's like I really don't spend a when I review a record, I don't really spend any time wondering what is everybody else going to say about this yeah. record. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I've sit there, I've listened to it two or three times, and you know, by the end of the day, I have to have a review done for it. I mean. This is one of the things, of course, about having a job like I do, where basically there's a steady uh, supply of this stuff coming and going all the time, every yeah. week, yeah. is that also a lot of these things I can only dwell on for so long. Yeah. Okay. I don't really, I'm not in a position where, like, you know, maybe there, you know, maybe there are, you know, people who do this more academically where, you know, they're spending like, you know, they're going to be writing like a 2,500 word piece on this and they spend like two weeks on it. I mean, I'm a guy that most of my reviews come in at under 500 words. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like my thing. I, one reviewer I've always uh, really admired, I, I disagree with him frequently about his opinions, but one I've really admired is Robert Christow just mm -hmm. because I think he is legitimately really good at summing up what, you know, he thinks about an album and mm -hmm. the character of it in a very short space. He does. He's the world's he's best very at that, good at probably. That. I mean, yeah. you know, 
Yeah, there are a lot of times where I think he's completely wrong in his opinion, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think in terms as as a writer, yeah, you know, he's absolutely masterful at what he does. Yeah, yeah, um, I'm with you on that. I the thing that gets me going is that I feel like there is a there's a total groupthink mentality among music critics that they all seem to go to bat for the same albums and artists and disregard the same albums and artists. And I, I'm tr- always trying to find out why that is. Is it because smart people that know a lot about music know that this is good and this is bad, that Neil Young has more value than NXS? Is it a the group think of the cool kids versus the uncool kids that you guys with... And again, I'm not I'm not trying to sound critical of you personally, but you guys with your rock criticisms and your outlets to continue to pimp Big Star and television. These are those are two of my favorite albums of all time too. But those mean more than Erasure or Depeche Mode or something like that. Why? Why do these? Why do you guys all agree unanimously on the same? things and why does the why does no one stand up for the depeche modes of the world why are they valueless is it because they use too many synthesizers is it because they weren't steeped in 60s classic rock is it because rolling stone didn't tell you guys that they were cool in time why does duran duran have no value i don't understand this and i can't and i it makes me kind of angry you know it's sometimes because Where's the guy out there putting their balls on the line saying, I'll stand up for Duran Duran. I'll be the guy that tells you that Duran Duran is amazing or uh, Depeche Mode is amazing or one of these other alternative bands, the Smiths, the ba- kinds of bands that, um, you know, the R- Rock and Roll Hall well, of Fame. Not to be rude, but I'd like to point out, I mean, I think that the Smiths had an awful lot of critical support. They did. They were, the wrong, they did. they were the wrong band to throw out there. I was thinking of 80s bands that, uh, of the alternative ilk that are... Now, granted, of course, I don't think people feel that way about Morrissey now, but I think that True. has much to do... Well, frankly, a lot of his solo work hasn't been as good, and let's face yeah. it, he's a loon now, so it's yeah. hard to support yeah. him. I'm with you. That was the wrong example, but in general, I hope you can see what I'm where I'm coming well, from. No, and I'm... Hey, that's something that I really don't know what to tell people about because, you know, you know, I think that I, I sometimes think people have this notion that there is this like tiny cabal of uh, rock critics who like meet in the secret underground dungeon under, uh, you know, Robert Christow's apartment once a week and, you know, <laughs> decides on, you know, what is and is not good about rock and roll right. uh, in the world. And that's simply not the case. Uh-huh. And, the thing is, and let's face it, there are some, you know, I do think that there are some things that a lot of people agree on, but I also think that one of the reasons they agree on them is because they are good music. I mean, mm-hmm. I think, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I like Big Star better than Erasure. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, on the other hand, you know, that's, you know, I'm not, you know, Erasure are good at what they do. It's just not something that speaks to me sure. as much personally. Right. Now, there are an awful lot of bands that I love dearly that never, well, like one that I mentioned was Game Theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, Game Theory didn't really get hardly any attention while they were around. And I think really those are some of the most, some of the best and most intelligent pop records of their era. You know, and I, mm-hmm. you know, I always was raving about them, and uh, me and nobody else practically. Mm-hmm. Now, it's funny, after Scott Miller died, there seemed to be a real uptick in interest in 
them. And uh, mm-hmm. fortunately, Omnivore reissued uh, their back catalog, and I think now they've started to get a, a, a bit more of a critical reappraisal. But you know, there are plenty of bands like that that you know I that I love that don't really seem to do all that well. Um, mm. You know, in terms of their public reputation. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, you know, it's one of those things that always you know bothers me that when people say something about you know, you know about like uh, somehow the like about the you know the the power that supposedly rock critics have over an artist's career. I said, really? Do you really believe that? I mean, if I had any power over record sales, you know, the fastbacks would be selling tons and tons of records. <laughs> but they, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think like the most of their albums sold like two thousand copies. You yeah, know, I mean, you know, yeah. that's a band I dearly, dearly loved. But I mean, commercially speaking, they, you know, they're pretty marginal. I mean, yeah. there's, you know, I, and I, you know, and also, I know, I don't know how many other people think about this. I mean, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of music I love where, you know, I. I think I really value an interesting idea mm. over craft mm. because there are tons of bands that I think like are musically, let's put it this way. I mean, let me put it this way. There are probably dozens and dozens of uh, jazz fusion groups that have players that are far more talented than any of the Beatles were. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, their work isn't nearly as interesting. Why? Because mm-hmm. the Beatles could really write songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That to me, like that's the thing is, I I would yeah. rather hear somebody, I would rather hear somebody with you know with Tinker Toy equipment, you know, kind of only rudimentary uh, instrumental skills, but writes really really good songs, than somebody who really has a tremendous amount of spit and polish and resources on their hand, but don't really have anything that interesting to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 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 kind of my aesthetic. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. Let's inject a third song here. Tell us a third sure. song. Pictures of Lily by the Who. I used to wake up in the morning. I used to feel so bad. I got so sick of having sleepless nights. I went and told my dad. He said, son, now here's some little something. And stuffed them on my wall. And now my nights ain't quite so lonely. In fact, I, I don't know bad at all I don't know bad at all Pictures of Lily Made my life so wonderful Pictures of Lily Helped me sleep at night Pictures of Lily my childhood Pictures of Lily, Lily, oh Lily, Lily, oh Lily. Pictures of Lily. I love the. I mean, I as far as I'm concerned, I think there was a good stretch in the uh, '60s and early '70s where the Who were the greatest band in in the world. I just. I think their best work is just absolutely mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and again, another band, you know, again, like they, uh, there was a lot of weird shifts in there. there and I'll be blunt. I'm very glad that Pete Townsend is really doing stuff, but I really find it questionable about why he's still calling it the who. Mm-hmm. I mean, so when he yeah, and Roger go out on tour, you'd rather it's the they Roger and call. Pete show. Yeah. And I don't begrudge them going out and playing. God knows I love both Roger and Pete, but there's just a part of me, particularly when you listen to the old records that, I mean, John Entwistle and Keith Moon were not just like your regular bassist and drummer. Both of them had such strong personalities yeah, musically. Yeah. And what they did so strongly impacted how those songs were performed and how they were recorded. I think taking that away from them, it's kind of it's kind of hard to say. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, I don't begrudge them going out, but I mean, also... There's a part of me that thinks it's amusing. Like, of course, back in 1982, I saw the Who at the Pontiac Silverdome because Pete Townsend informed us this was the last chance any of us would ever have to see the Who on that tour. <laughs> uh-huh. I remember. <laughs> I was nine years old, and it was being, and I lived in the Bay Area, and it was being covered on the news. And I remember being up, staying up late enough to watch the news that night, and them doing a. I think they were probably playing at the Cow Palace or one of those like Bay Area historic. Oh, yeah. Candlestick Park, maybe, or something like that. This is the last. I remember it so well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And and the Michigan date was at the Pontiac Silverdome, which is that was the big that was the big enclosed football stadium where the Detroit Lions uh, played. And uh, yeah, it's probably it's acoustically it's one of the worst places to see a show. (laughs) But it's kind of like, okay, Pete Townsend said this is they're never going to go do this again. And I don't want to miss my last chance to see the who. So I. I forked over and went, and frankly, they, you know, I think they'd been doing that long enough that, you know, they were really good at playing a big room. There are those at, frankly, I think I've always said, I see more, I've seen more really great rock and roll shows in people's basements than I have Mm. in sporting arenas. Mm -hmm. That's very true. You know, there aren't that many bands that play places that big where I find the show really, really satisfying. Like, I mean, the Who can do that. Neil Young can do that. Bruce Springsteen can really do that. Yeah. Yep. Not a lot of other people, you know. I yeah. think you, it's hard. To, it's hard to really, you know, make that connection with the audience when you know you're when you're playing to like twenty thousand people at once in a big concrete bunker. Yeah, I would agree. Um, it's interesting. The Who are a band that I've never. Fe- I did. I like the Who fine. I the hits. I'm a little bit tired of, but there's never been enough there to provoke me to really deep dive all of their albums individually. I have I have Tommy, I have Quadrophenia, I have a couple of them. But um I don't know. They don't they don't touch me emotionally or excite me enough to like I got to put on the who right now. But I recognize that I'm in the minority there. That most people feel differently. Most people feel like you. Yeah, I just like I said, they're just a band that uh I don't know, you know I think there was particularly a certain period of my life. I mean, I, you know, just you're a mixed up teenager and mm-hmm. Pete Townsend was extraordinarily good at writing about mixed up teenagers. So it was yeah. very, uh, I, actually that's part of what I said. that was kind of really funny about the who was that, uh, you know, as you know, it seemed like the who became a more difficult proposition for Pete Townsend, the older he got, because mm-hmm. in so many ways, their mindset on their best stuff was so very adolescent mm-hmm. and, you know, in a way, it was really hard for that band to mature. 
you yeah. know, particularly after particularly after Moon died, and uh, yeah. you know, I think they kind of, you know, he was still writing good songs, but I think the you know the band itself they kind of lost the plot for a while there. Yeah, I would agree. Um, okay, let's talk about criticism in this day and age. Where do you think it fits in? Do you think the young kids that are listening to I'm not I don't know young kid music on their phones or whatever and they're tweeting about it and Instagramming about it do you think they care about the new review that Mark Deming is writing probably not really yeah um yeah. I well first off I mean I'm I'm not writing about all that much I mean I write about a fair number of new bands but I don't think I'm writing about like you know, you know I'm I'm not writing about the uh, the uh, the latest SoundCloud rapper or mm-hmm. uh, you know the you know the latest like, you know Teen Sensation or all like that. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I think they're just smart enough to know that uh, giving that to a 58 year old man is not a good idea for me. <laughs> <laughs> good. Um, that said, though, I mean, I also think I, I think that it's. I just think that like in terms of how people are checking out things. And the way media is going, I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, reviews aren't as important to a lot of people as they mm-hmm. used to be. Mm-hmm. I think, well, well, first off, of course, I think the process by which people are getting their information is so much different. I mean, when I, you know, when I first became aware of this stuff and, you know, I was reading, you know, I was reading Cream and Trouser Press and a lot of magazines like that, I mean, that's the thing that if you wanted to find out about stuff, you know, particularly if you're, you know, growing up in a town that didn't have, you know, a big uh, community for people who are interested in, um, you know, stuff that mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily being played on the radio all the time, you kind of had to go seek out information about that. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, magazines like that were real gateway into things. You would, mm-hmm. you know, read about stuff and it kind of gave you a roadmap of how to check things out. And stuff like, you know, those magazines aren't there anymore, and I don't think that's important. And I, uh, well, I don't think it's important to the younger the younger audience. Mm-hmm. I think also, I think social media in a very real way has kind of taken over that mm-hmm. in terms of, like, I think it's more about, you know, kids finding out about stuff that way mm-hmm. um, from, like, you know, you know from peers or quote-unquote influencers yeah people like that i think in a lot of ways they have more uh they have more power than um a, a critic like a critic like myself right yeah and also i mean and the critical establishment is in a very different place because again print media sadly is not doing it all well yeah and while you know i think there are outlets online it's a very different game now because, you know, well, first off, you know, one of the things that uh, there are a lot of great things about the Internet, but in terms of like uh, paying creators, it's for the most part pretty lousy. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you know, actually the fact that I write for a primarily online you know, publication right. and I'm actually making a living off of it, this, I fully appreciate this makes yeah, me very unusual. Yep. Yeah, it's very unusual. I, <laughs> yep. I, you know, I, you know, I, I, I regularly thank whatever deity is out there for that. <laughs> trust me. But um, as I said, you know, I really think so much of this now is also, you know, it's about social media. It's about word of mouth. 
it's things like that. I mean, and yeah. also, you know, the you know the music industry being as it is, um, it's in a very very different place because now, I mean, you don't have to have the you don't have to have the you know ability to get your record into you know several hundred thousand st- shops all around you know the country. I mean, you can you know you can just post your stuff on one or two two or three places, and a whole lot of people can hear it. On one hand, that's very very good. Also, but at the same time, there's an awful lot of stuff out there, and nobody is really you know nobody is able really out there doing I think a terribly good job of pushing which is really good and which mm. is really bad. There, you know, for all I know. For all I know, a band that could be my absolute favorite band of all time has posted an album on SoundCloud right. in the last week, but I'm never going to know about it because there's just so much there, yeah. and there's really nobody creating a roadmap. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's like at one point you really, you know, you know, right, right now you know, it's mostly about. I mean, I think the business side of this. It's mostly also about like what is going to be the thing that immediately gets a lot of attention and makes a lot of money. The mm-hmm. industry does not seem terribly interested in the idea of legacy artists anymore. Right, right, yeah. That's Which is funny true. because a lot of them are still out there and they still have an audience. And it's funny because there are an awful lot of people, I don't know if you've found this interesting as I have, there are an awful lot of artists who are have had long careers that now are charting higher than they ever have before mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. because you know they they have an audience that still buys physical products right right yeah yeah, yeah it's you true. got like you know people you know people my age are still kind of accustomed to the idea of actually forking over money for music and actually getting a piece of plastic in their hand yeah yeah i thought it was inter- at the time of us talking i think it was last week or the week before the specials the two-tone band, the specials, had their first number one album in the UK. And yeah. it's, their, it's their first album they've put out in like 30 years or something, 20 years, with Terry Hall anyway. It's yeah, like with, yeah, the, yeah, the new one with Terry Hall and, yeah. you know, and that. But yeah, I, I, again, I thought that was really remarkable, which because particularly when you consider how incredibly popular yeah. they were in the UK back then and yeah. you know still are, but it's this, time, this is the first time they ever had a number one. And again, this is, you know, there there are probably a lot of uh, younger acts out there that maybe have a higher profile, but you know, people mm-hmm. only listen to their stuff on like online or through streaming sure. media or things sure. like that. I mean, it's specials fans for the most part are old enough that they have an album out. They're right. going to actually go out and buy this. Thing. Yeah, and it probably they probably only had to sell about fifteen thousand to make number one. Exactly, but they had fifteen thousand fans out there that cared, whereas. Uh, I don't know, Selena Gomez or whoever doesn't no no one's rushing out to buy her latest album, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, somebody like, you know, yeah, I mean, there, there are like millions of kids listening to Ariana Grande, but I don't mm-hmm. think any of them are actually buying the thing. No. They're like, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're listening to it on, you know, they're listening to it on, um, oh God, I know there are like about dozens of streaming services and sure. I'm an old man and so Spotify I don't remember any of them. YouTube and all <laughs> Spotify, that stuff. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, something I think about is that I feel like the role of a critic and you're, I don't know that I even consider all music critics, true music, music critics in the sense that I, I see you guys more as historians in a way, 
which is where I sort of feel like the real music criticism at this point, uh, that's the value that you bring to a marketplace is not how do I feel about the new Ed Sheeran album? Because anyone who likes him or, you know, his fans don't give a crap what Mark Deming thinks about Ed Sheeran's album. They're going to buy it. They're going to go see him or they're going to stream it or whatever it is. The value yeah. of what Mark Deming brings to the marketplace is that he's going to contextualize Ed Sheeran in the in the the wake of James Taylor or uh, somebody, Marshall Crenshaw or something like, you know, the singer songwriter. Let me take you back a few steps and tell you where Ed Sheeran came from. Now, a 14-year-old who's really digging Ed Sheeran doesn't care about that either. But eventually, as you document this stuff historically, they will or they might, hopefully. You know, it's like real-time history doesn't matter. Older history might still, contextually. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I my take on it has always kind of been... Like I mentioned, I mentioned Robert Christow earlier, and in a very real way, I always liked his perspective that what he was doing was consumer information. Yeah, you know, I uh, that you know basically he puts out the reviews there, he gives it a grade, and you you know what he thinks about it. Take that and use that as you as you will. Right. I always thought this was funny. Uh, one time when uh, I was doing movie reviews for the paper in Lansing, uh, I met. Uh, somebody at a friend's place, and he said, wait, are you the Mark Deming that writes for the Capital Times? <laughs> I said, yeah, I am. Said, you know, it's really funny. Whenever I see a movie and I really love it, you hate it. Uh -huh. And whenever I see a movie that you, you know, that I really hate, you seem to really, really like it. Mm -hmm. I went, huh. <laughs> Does this mean the information is useful for you? He said, oh, very much so. I said, well, that's great. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I figured, oh, you know, it's like there are a lot of, you know, there are writers like that where, you know, yeah. I know where their tastes at and I know where mine are. And sometimes, yeah. you know, they'll say something about a record and I, they hate it. And I read that and I said, oh, you know, that, yeah. that sounds interesting to me. Like, I read a great interview once with uh, Billy Zoom from X and he said that, like, he remembered reading a review of the first uh, Ramones album and the guy said, this stuff, it's too loud, it's too fast, all the lyrics sound like they could have come out of Mad Magazine, you know, this is the worst thing ever. He said, that sounds like something I'd like to hear. Right. <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted. Perfect. Yeah, you know, okay. and you know, like I said, you know, there, like, like I said, you know, there's, a, you know, there are people I read because I'm looking for deep insight, but there are other times that, you know, uh, somebody will just tell me just enough about a record that I'll have an idea if it's something that I would be interested in. Uh -huh. And I, I think, you know, a lot of what I write about, I, I really think that that's kind of what I'm aiming for. I, I want to give people a reasonable picture of what the album is like, what I thought about it. Um, I think also if it's somebody that, you know, they're fairly far into their career, where it fits in, you know, with you know, the other things that they've done, mm -hmm. A lot of these things, to me, are very much, like I said, I, I'm really kind of trying to you know, aim this towards people like, you know, you want to know something about this album, well, I'm going to try to tell you something about it. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah I think particularly for what we do at, um, you know, for what we've been doing at uh, All Music, um, I really take the name All Music seriously, and then I think that, you know, at best, we're really trying to 
you know, cover as much as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. We want to have um, a little bit of everything, or at least the stuff that people are most likely to want to know about. Yeah. And I think, you know, you got to have to judge things also on uh, the merits within, you know, uh, each artist. Yeah. I think, like, Tom said something once, and I've always agreed with him on that, that, you know, there's, you know, what constitutes a really good Britney Spears album is different than what's going to constitute, uh, you know, a really good Paul Simon album, True. for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And he was like, I remember he got a lot of crap from people because, um, oh, Lord, I'm blanking on her name, you know, the really horrible uh, rich girl, you know, who... Car- some Kardashian or Paris Hilton or Lindsay Lohan Marisol, or something? That's it. Okay. Marisol, yeah. Thank you. That horrible rich person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that she put out an album and uh-huh. it ended up, you know, you know, AMG gave it a really good review. And people said, how could you possibly think that that's, you know, that record mm-hmm. is as good as such and such or such and such, which has got the same rating? Is it? Well, we're not necessarily saying that. We're saying that within what she does, right. it's very good. It's, mu- you know, it's much better than you would expect. You mm-hmm. know, I think... And uh, I think you know part of that's it. We you know there everybody has a best album, everybody has a worst album, and mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of artists that you know their best album is not up to a lot of others' worst album. I mean, mm-hmm. As I've said about the Beatles, I think you know Let It Be is their worst album, but there are tons of bands out there would probably give their right arm to make an album yeah. that had songs like you know like you know Across the Universe on sure. it. <laughs> yeah, agreed. That's it's one... all relative. So yeah. so much of this is relative, and I think you need when you're, I think when you're writing about this stuff, you need to keep that in mind. Yeah, I, uh, I again going back to what I appreciate most, I think about all music is, as you're saying this, I'm realizing I think what it is is that you guys tend to compare an artist's album to their other albums, not necessarily yeah. to whether it's good or bad or has cultural significance. For, like if I, you know, any one of my favorite bands ever is. Uh, simple minds and i can go I, I know they're not a critic darling but when i go in and i see that you're comparing the latest simple minds album to an earlier simple minds album not to whether simple minds have anything interesting to say or matter today that means a lot for, as a fan you know as somebody who's wanting a fair criticism of a band i love i'm getting that from all music where i might not get that somewhere else you know right I appreciate that about it yeah um, like i i think that's part of our that's always been part of our mission statement. We're really trying to, uh, we try to evaluate, you know, an artist, you know, well, you can't, well, of course, always there are artists that, you know, you're looking at them in terms of you know, the overall spectrum of music. But most importantly, I think, is particularly with an artist who has, has had a long career, is where that piece of music fits in within the other work that they've done. Mm-hmm. Right. That's true. I mean, I know that that's what I look for. Right. Particularly, you know, again, when, you know, there are certain artists that, you know, whenever they put out an album, it usually kind of lands on my desk. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's what you kind of have to look for. You know, I, mean, I, I joke with my friends a lot that uh, I, I sometimes kind of regret that I seem to have become sort of the, uh, you know, the TiVo desk for uh, Robert Pollard and Guided by Voices just mm-hmm. because he puts out so much stuff mm-hmm. and so much of it is just so jam-packed of stuff that it, you know, I don't know if Robert ever thought about which are his good songs and which are his right. bad songs. He just throws all of them out there. Right. And Lord knows, the man has written some great songs, and he's also thrown out a bunch of stuff that, you know, I don't... 
I sense that he wrote it, he recorded it, and then 30 seconds later, he completely forgot about right, it. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> so true. Yeah, and so, yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes with artists like that, it's a little difficult. In defense of them, I want to say that actually the last couple of Guided by Voices albums have been really, really strong. They've really been on a hot streak lately, I Good. think, partly because yeah. uh, I think probably they got Doug Gillard back in the band, and I think he's, I think he, unlike Robert, I think he has a better, has a better eye towards quality control. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of artists like that. They need somebody like that to, mm-hmm. you know, you know, somebody around there to say, okay, these are good, these are bad. You know, yeah. let's do this. Let's not do that. You know? Okay. Yeah, I uh, guided by voices. That's another one of those bands that critics love. Like guided by guided by voices has more value than Tears for Fears does, or than White Snake does, or whatever. For whatever reason, you critics have just decided that we're all in on Guided by Voices, and those other bands I mentioned are terrible, and there's no way they're going to ever win us back. And I, that's uh, I like Guided by I like all of them. I'm not I'm not I'm. It's just a thought. It's a mentality among music critics. I I am trying to understand better. Uh, not to get off on another tangent. You, no, I, we do I, that. I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to be difficult about it. But it, again, like I said, I mean, I know it's not like I sat down and like you know got the got the dictate you know got the message from on high about what I am and I'm I'm mm-hmm. not supposed to like. There, you know, an exact. You know, it is true. There are artists that you know critics seem to like them a lot, yeah. and that doesn't necessarily compare to uh what the larger audience thinks exactly why that is i don't know yeah um i think the best thing that i can uh the best way i can explain that is there are an awful lot of people that think mcdonald's is fine Mm -hmm. but there are also a lot of you know there's somebody if you're really really serious about food you're probably not going to think it's all that great Mm -hmm. and you're probably going to point out someplace better someplace where you can get a better cheeseburger than that Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I mean, I don't begrudge anybody for liking McDonald's. It's just I don't think it's a good cheeseburger. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, you know. Yeah. And, you know, and that's not to say that, you know, I think Wendy's makes a pretty good cheeseburger, and they're very popular. So so I'm not, you know, I really don't, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do understand what people sometimes get the notion that, you know, a lot of music critics are purposely obscurist. And I've never really felt that way. There are an huh. awful lot of my favorite bands, frankly, aren't terribly well-known, but it's not like I, I liked them because they weren't. It's always kind of frustrating to me yeah, that yeah. they're not, because there are a lot of bands I love. I think, you'll, I think if you read a lot of my stuff, you'll notice that. There's mm-hmm. a lot of bands that I love, and I'm, I'm a real cheerleader for them. I really want people to listen to them. And uh, it doesn't really happen very often, mm-hmm. but... You know, at least for some of for me, I know for me and my own personal circle of friends, I remember when uh, Nevermind by Nirvana broke, and it was just really a huge surprise for all of us because mm-hmm. this was the sort of band that wasn't supposed to sell a whole lot of records. Yeah. Nobody I knew had any expectation that Nirvana was going to become, you know, suddenly the voice of a generation and sell like five or six million albums. Nobody I knew was guessing that. And for a while, it was really something that was very much speculated about amongst our friends. It's like, okay, uh, one of these bands that's not that different from a lot of the bands that you know we see and our friends are in 
they suddenly had a really huge record. What is this? You know, yeah. what does this mean? What you know? What could the future be like? You know, does this mean instead of having to be you know, in, like the the other bands that are on sub pop, maybe now they're going to get uh, you know selling a lot more records? Does this mean like you know some of the other bands that Nirvana were touring with, maybe they're going to get a better chance? Well, then it didn't quite turn out that way. You ended up like with. Um, you know, you ended up with Pearl Jam and uh, mm-hmm. Soundgarden, who were kind of the more commercial version of that. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Which is funny because actually, it was like the you know, the the people that were kind of more radio friendly were the ones that came second, not you know, not, not the band that. Uh, True, good point. Yeah, the Trojan horse that kind of broke the doors down. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, okay, fourth pick. Give us a fourth, and then we're gonna quickly get into like favorites and least favorites and stuff like that. Land of a Thousand Dances by Wilson Pickett. Oh, nice. Actually, I think I was talking with somebody about Wilson Pickett uh, the other day, and it was uh, stuck in my head, and he's just one of those guys. I think his singles are just so much fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy just throws himself into his performances with just such brio, and uh, and that particular, t- I mean, I, I defy anybody to not want to get up and dance listening to that. Good point, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Have you, okay. We were talking. Yeah, have, uh, have you ever heard his version of Hey Jude? Yes. Oh, my I gosh. It. I remember yes. hearing that when I was a kid, and particularly at the end, he just goes into the screaming frenzy, and yeah. I remember thinking, is he okay? Yeah. He sounds like he's hurting him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, it's a brilliant performance, but yeah. it's just like, he, you know, he's not afraid to go there. <laughs> right. He is incredible. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, you know, I think there were some other R&B performers that I think were better singers or like that, but I mean, I think just for sheer intensity and not caring, like, you know, if he's, you know, if he's going into the red zone or not, I don't really think you can beat Wilson Pickett. Yeah. Good pick. I'm with you. Uh, okay, let's let's break down. I kept you longer than I thought I would. I hope you're doing okay. Um, oh, it's okay. I, I have the day off tomorrow. So, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. I don't have any place in particular I have to be until 5 o'clock tomorrow, so... Okay, good. Well, then we'll just eat up all this time debating music. Uh, sounds okay, good. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll put on some tea. I'll, you know, <laughs> okay, let's get into the fun stuff. Now, I uh, as, again, I can see your list on all music, which is harshing my buzz a little bit about some of these questions, but I'm going to ask you anyway, in case those things aren't committed to memory. Uh, Desert Island Disc, your 
the, your favorite album to listen to? Not trying to be a buzzkill, but one of the things is like I, most people I know who write about music love making lists, and I'm always wary of it because I'll make a list and then like ask me 12 hours later, sure. and I'll probably come up with some something completely mm-hmm. different. I mm-hmm. mean, there are things that I know that I absolutely love, but having to you know there are enough things that I love that having to pick. You know, sometimes it. You know, sometimes to me it feels like Sophie's Choice. You know, mm-hmm. like you know. I know. You know. Yeah. Okay. Which of your child do you love most? <laughs> right. But I think that's true like, for no, a lot of people. I don't want to answer that. But, right. You know, I think that's true I for think... a lot of people that care about music, though, and that's why I think. Oh, no yeah. Would fault you or take this as concrete gospel? It's the mood you're in right now. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I have to say, my one favorite band of all time is the Velvet Underground. Okay. And uh, I would say if I had, I don't think it's their best album, but if I had to go to a desert island with just one Velvet Underground album, if I couldn't take the box set that has all the studio albums in it, Mm -hmm. I would take a 1969 Velvet Underground Live. Oh, really? Well, I think just be, well, my thing about that is I think the band was really performing well at that point, but also... I think it's the album that really does the best job of really capturing all sides of the band. I mean, you mm-hmm. can kind of hear like you can kind of hear the, uh, the the quieter and more contemplative stuff like they did on the third album. You know, they can still do like you know you know they can mm-hmm. still do kind of like loud noisy stuff when they want to. You know, a you know you get kind of a sense of what they were going to do in the future on uh, Loaded. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also some songs on there that at least at that time that came out never had popped up anywhere else. And uh, and again, I think those uh, I think those performances are terrific. I've said more than once to people that I really consider the Velvet Underground to be my Grateful Dead in yeah. that they're the band that like I can listen to live stuff of theirs over and over and I always find something different every time I hear a Velvet Underground live tape I hear something about it that really sets it apart from the others I think okay. they really did do something really interesting and different each time they went on stage yeah yeah you, you're probably right that's a that's a good call I I love them too. Uh, the third album is my favorite Velvet Underground album. And I think that's that because... That is such a beautiful record. Yeah. To me, that's one of the amazing things about them. They could go from making an album like White Light, White Heat mm-hmm. and then make the third album, which is practically the complete opposite. They went from... Yeah. Uh, yeah, they went from this absolute insane, you know, amphetamine shriek album mm-hmm. to this really beautifully quiet and contemplative, you know, record with a song called, you know, a song called Jesus. I mean, right. would anybody have expected that? No, no but they're both fantastic records. Yeah. Yeah. I think beginning to see the light is probably my favorite Velvet Underground song. And that happens to be on that album. So that would be, that's why I probably favor that album over the other. That is a but, beautiful song. I yeah. love that. Well, good. Okay. Okay. Um, I think my favorite album of all time is uh, the first Crowded House album, which that is a beautiful record. Yeah, that's uh, they really are. Yeah, the you know the, the the fins are just amazing. I mean, I really love that record, and I really love Woodface. Those are both yeah. just sterling. You know, just absolutely beautiful pop albums. You know, just mm-hmm. brilliantly constructed, great songwriting. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Neil Finn's my favorite songwriter of all time, and and um, and this is. Speaking of people who were not, you know, just slurping everything they do, uh, I didn't love, especially I really didn't like the last Crowded House album that came out a couple years ago, Intriguer. That was really boring. And um, I don't love all of his solo work, but he's the guy when he puts something out, I'm at least 
uh, most excited to pay attention to what it is, you know, I'm most like looking forward to it. And so, yeah, that first Crowded House album is my favorite album of all time. I also, I will say, I, I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying, but the one thing about him is I, I kind of say the same thing about um, Finn that I say about Bob Dylan, that even the worst record he makes usually has two or three mm-hmm. really good songs on it. I mean, yeah. even the really bad Bob Dylan songs usually have at least one or two songs where you go, this guy really is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Say, yeah like, well, actually, both of the Finns, yeah, they're both like, you know, they're some of the, you know, I think there's an up, there are ups and downs in their bodies of work, but mm-hmm. pretty much everything they do has at least, you know, two or three songs on it. We go, God, this guy is good. Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why I've never warmed to Tim Finn. And I feel bad saying that because uh, that's true for a lot of people. And he's probably sick to death of being in his younger brother's shadow. But that's the way it oh, goes. Yeah. I've never come around to Tim. I don't mind it, but it doesn't have anywhere near the impact to me that Neil Finn's stuff does. Um Okay, let's see. Uh, so, the Velvet Underground—that's your favorite album. Um, do you have like a favorite concert that you've ever been to? The best show you've ever seen? Oh Lord, that's always so hard to say. Uh huh. Um, one I'll say because I really never hear people talk much about them as a live act, but I remember uh, right after uh, Little Steven left Springsteen's band and he put out his first solo album. I saw them play uh, in Detroit at St. Andrew's Hall. It was on Valentine's Day. Mm. I remember that. And seriously, that was just one of the that was one of the best, most intense shows I ever saw in my life. It was just the guy really. I mean, he had an mm-hmm. absolutely amazing band with him. The yeah. songs really all connected. You know, everybody was just incredibly charismatic. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just really. You know, I, I was just watching and I was like, God, how could anybody this good actually kind of just be somebody's sideman for yeah. so long? This is like another one. I think one that completely came out of left field was when I was writing for the state news at MSU. Um, there was a bar in town called Dooley's that was doing New Wave Night every uh, Tuesday. I think they were doing that for a year and I ended mm-hmm. up reviewing a bunch of the shows. And one of them, like, uh, I think I had heard one song by Wall of Voodoo, mm. and uh, I saw them, and I think it was about a week and a half before Call of the West, the album with uh, Mexican Radio on it, yeah. had came out. They were an astounding live band. Really? Yes, they were amazingly huh. good. They were just really... Stan Ridgeway was just this great, nervous, hyper-front man, yeah. and uh, you had the percussionist who had this huge rack of just junk like literally junk like scrap metal and things like that and uh you know the way all the pieces fit together with the synthesizers and the guitars i was just, I mean, afterwards i'm just like you know i mean literally i was just afterwards i was just like holy crap you guys are amazing yeah and i don't think you know i think that lineup of the band didn't hold together for very long you know because uh-huh. you know basically the stan ridgeway and most of the guys left after they toured behind that and it's a shame because Seriously, I mean, I don't hear that many people talk about them live, but uh, I the night that I saw them, they were absolutely astoundingly good. Wow, they, that's uh, great. Yeah, what an answer. Good for you. I like see. Uh, there's I'm I love it when the critics stand up for the little guys like that. Good for you. Um, it's so funny you mentioned Little Steven because 
that was going to be one of my answers too. Last year, I saw two of the greatest concerts I've ever seen. Now, my my standard answer to the best concert is always Springsteen, and I've seen him twice. One time was good. The first time, though, which was, I, I again, growing up in Salt Lake City, bands that I love didn't come through Salt Lake City, so I'm not one of those people who got to see some major band back in the '80s, you know, at their height or before they were big or anything like that. But he did come through around 2000, I think it was. And uh, it was the best show I've ever seen. It's a it's a revival, just as it's supposed to be. It's spiritually uplifting. And um, he did what I had always heard he was really good at doing, and he did it. And just a few months ago, little Steven came through here in Denver, and he's got his 15-piece band, and they're playing on this little stage in a little club here in Denver. And it was one of the most transporting, soulful, just... Uh, again, the spiritually uplifting shows I've ever seen in my life, and you're so you're so right. He either he works with Springsteen because they share this, or he learned it from him. Whatever it is, Little Steven has more soul than you could possibly imagine. It was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. Yeah, the guy is a yeah. He's really, as I said, it's one of those things. It's hard to believe that he's best known for being a sideman because yeah. he. He absolutely has the talent and the charisma to uh, completely take over uh, an audience. He's fantastic. Yeah. He's yeah. really, really good. And I'm a real I, sucker. I didn't get to see that tour, but oh. I, I didn't get to see the most recent tour, but I know a couple of my friends did um, who had actually seen him, like, again, back in the day when I did, yeah. and they said, no, he's absolutely still doing a, a fantastic show, and yeah. he had a killer band with him. He did. And I'm a sucker for horns, and I love that he does horns. Oh, yeah. And that they, they just make that sound so meaty. Now, having said all that, I last summer I went to what is now the greatest concert that I've ever been to, and it was David Burns' recent tour. Um, I heard I, that that was really, really good. It was mind-blowing. It was more performance art than it was a concert, obviously. And I've never warmed, talk about people who are so, I've never warmed his solo stuff that much. I love the Talking Heads, but I don't, I've never cared that deeply about a David Burns solo album. But I wanted to go. I looked at the set list. I saw that there were a lot of Talking Heads songs, including some of my very favorites that don't get played very often, like Izimbra and the more African-sounding stuff. So I went, and it was the most incredible artistic evening of my life, I think. Uh, there's like 12 or 13 members of the band, but there's no chords. They're not bound to anything. They're just walking around with their with their instruments freely and it's all choreographed and the stage is beautiful and this was at red rocks which is the greatest venue in the world if you ask me to see a concert and um yeah so david burns last tour is the greatest thing I've, i think i've ever seen probably um, yeah, you know to be perfectly i i agree with you what you said about his solo catalog i mean the guy's brilliant but i don't mm -hmm. i think he's somebody i kind of think that if he my understanding is, like, near the end, he and the other people in the Talking Heads weren't getting along at all. Yeah. But I think sometimes maybe people kind of need that friction mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, in order to, to really come up with something, and they need yeah. somebody challenging them. Yep. I think there's some artists like that, that, uh, and unfortunately I think he's one of them. I just mm -hmm. don't think his solo work has been as interesting as the stuff he did with Talking Heads. But, Again, I, I wasn't able to see that tour, but I know some people that did, and I read a bunch of the reviews, and I saw some of the clips of the performances online. I was like, wow, this, yeah. is, this is pretty cool. This is amazing, amazing. that he does it. And I mean, he's, I mean, you know, you can tell this is a guy who really has a background in art. And he yes. does, he's not just thinking about this, like, let's go on stage and play. I mean, right. I mean he no. really wants to make a, you know, he wants to make this a performance. Yeah. 
Yeah. You forget this is the guy that does Stop Making Sense, which is one of the greatest concert video movies of all time. Oh, you know? yeah. That, that, like, yeah. Oh, that's absolutely amazing. I yeah. mean, yeah. and, you know, again, like, you know, it's, you know, it's a great performance, but at the same time, also, you can tell, like, the band, you know, it wasn't just a thing of, we're just going to go out and play it and you're going to film it. No, yeah. they really had, like, we're going to, you know, we're really going to build a, you know, we're going mm-hmm. to build a show around this, and it helps that they had somebody as smart as Jonathan Demme to help, help them put it on film. Uh, now, that leads me to my next question, which was going to be, what's your favorite music-oriented movies? And I'm glad to know you used to write movie reviews, too, because that means you really... Care, I have a feeling we could have just as interesting a conversation about cinema as we are about music. So what do you feel strongly about? In fact, let's break it down. What? Tell me first documentary. Tell me, and that documentary can include anything nonfiction. It could include Stop Making Sense or any kind of concert film. What's your favorite nonfiction music-related film? First thing that pops into my mind would be Guinea Shelter. Oh, okay. Which is... Granted, in a lot of ways, it's not very fun to watch, but at the same time, you know, well, the early stuff really does cap, you know, the early parts of the film really do capture the moment when the Rolling Stones actually had some business calling themselves the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that the dramatic arc of how that film works in terms of, you know, it starts out someplace and then it takes us someplace completely different. I mean, to a certain degree, of course, that was dictated by the horrible circumstances that occurred in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, I really think the Maisel's brothers really, I think they really captured something about the zeitgeist of the late seven, the late sixties that mm-hmm. was, I think, unfortunately very prescient. Mm-hmm. And also, that it's just like you can read about the whole god awful mess that Altamont was. But just watching that footage at the end of the film, it's just stunning. You're just realizing, how could anybody mm-hmm. have, I mean, you know, a band this big and theoretically this smart, they, they, you know, they couldn't have done this any better than this? What were they yeah. thinking? Yeah. Like, there's one moment in that film, which actually is funny, but it just sums up so much about it to me. Like, they're, they're right in the middle of performing a song, and a dog walks across the stage. <laughs> I mean, this is how completely out of control the show is. Dogs are walking through the band's sp- yeah. playing area while yeah. they're performing, which kind of makes you wonder exactly, you know, maybe this is why, you know, Rolling Stones tour since then had been so aggressively planned down to the every last detail. I mean, sure. you know, you know, <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, Mick saw, okay, this is what happens. From <laughs> right. now on, I'm going to be the control freak. Right. I read a hilarious thing years ago in Musician Magazine. Um, they had an issue where, like, uh, one of the issues was about various uh, professions in the music industry, and the very last page uh, had a piece on uh, the T-shirt guy. He was a guy that worked for Brockham, which was a company that uh, they licensed uh, the rights for T-shirts and merchandising from different bands, and they would go out on the tour with them, you know, selling, you know, selling mm-hmm. stuff. And this guy said he had done a Rolling Stones tour. And he said that one thing is like twice a week, uh, Mick would go over the figures. And he said like if there was a particular item that they had a lot of that wasn't moving, 
Mick would wear it on stage. <laughs> he said that always boosted sales of this stuff. Yes. He said, like, yeah, like, there were these really ugly-looking, like, you know, like, you know, Rolling Stones board shorts that weren't moving at all, so Mick wore them on stage one that night, and all of a sudden, you know, we, we were selling tons of that them. That is so, yeah. fascinating. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. That would work. London School of Economics, guys. Yeah, know me. yeah. Okay. Um, these days, I think my favorite rock doc is uh, end of the century the Ramones documentary? Oh, I, uh, I, that is a great movie. But in a lot of ways, it's just you know, it's the Ramones version of Let It Be. It's just sad to realize yeah. just how poorly they got along at that yeah. point. Because yeah. they were again, the Ramones were a band that I just so dearly loved at mm -hmm. a point in my life. And, mm -hmm. and again, you know, it's not that surprising, you know, that bands don't always get along. I mean. I've been in a few bands, and one thing I've learned is like being in a band is a lot like family, mm -hmm. in that you know these are people that you know you're really close to and you really kind of love them, but at the same time they know you in a way most people don't, so they can really get under your skin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I mean it's like watching that movie again. It was it's an incredibly fascinating story, but boy, man, mm -hmm. there was just you know yeah, there was just so much dysfunction in that band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I really thought that was a very thorough and entertaining show and emotional too. And it came out, you know, what ten years ago or it was. Now I feel like everyone knows their story, but at the time that was hearing the story told that way was still sort of a little bit of a unique thing. So yeah. just seeing it contextualized that way, I thought was really impactful. I like that one a lot. I also really like the Rush documentary Beyond the Lighted Stage that came out probably about ten years ago as well. And uh, I, I like Rush a lot. I'm not a super fan like some people are, but I just found them so engaging and so interesting and told their story so well. They seem such like, like such likable guys that I came away fe feeling very endeared to them, you know, because of it. And so I, I, uh, I really like that one. I don't know if you've seen that one, but I liked it a lot, too. I have, not, I have not, but I mean to. I have several friends tell me the same thing, that it's a really, really, you know, fascinating story. Yeah. You know, another, another one that just popped into my mind that I really, really loved was the documentary about Anvil. Yes, I had their drummer just, on what this I, podcast. I think one yeah. of the things I like, because you really don't normally yeah. see a documentary made about a band that hasn't really uh -huh. enjoyed that much success, and it... I think it's really for me. It was a, it's a kind of story that doesn't get told often enough, yeah. and I think that film did a really great job of that. And as goofy as that band seems at some times in that movie, by the time it's over, you really sense for good or ill. This is their calling. This yeah. is like these guys. This means too much for them to not go out and play. This is like something that gives their life meaning. And yeah. okay, maybe they're just kind of like this kind of goofy Canadian metal band and the guy, you know, plays guitar with a dildo and it's kind of silly, but that doesn't change the fact right. about, you know, this, you know, these guys mean this. This is yeah. very, very important to them, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, it's the kind of story you don't hear that often, and I really thought they did a brilliant job of, of getting that across. Like I said, I don't think, and what I loved about it was they never really, you know, they didn't try to convince you that Anvil were the greatest band of the world, and they or convinced you they weren't kind of cheesy in some ways. But they also convinced you of how much this means to them. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, let, let's face it. I mean, you know, there there are a lot more bands in the world, you know, like Anvil, 
than there are like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. Sure. I mean, and after a certain point, you wonder why are these guys still doing this? Yeah, it's kind of like a little bit like we were talking about later. Some bands like why are they still doing this? What? Yeah. Well, I think in a way that movie does a really good job of answering this. It's just, it it, this is the thing that this is the thing that gives their life's meaning. Yeah, I would agree. I like that movie a lot. I had the drummer Rob Reiner on here very early on. And it's interesting, after that movie came out, I, I I, felt a lot of love for them. I wanted to be supportive. And they came through town here. And so I went and saw them in concert. And I like heavy metal, but they're a little heavier than is in my comfort zone. But I wanted to be supportive anyway. And there yeah. were 13 people at the show. And I just felt heartbroken for them. You know, uh, and you just it's like I'm sure everyone hoped that this movie was going to change things. And it probably did a little, but not quite as much as they may have hoped, which is in keeping probably with the narrative of their career anyway. But uh, just seemed like really sweet guys. So um, actually, I went, around the time that came out, I uh, I got to interview the director and, mm. uh, you know, you know, I really like talking to him about it because actually he had been friends with those guys for a long time. He actually, when he was a teenager, he roadied for them for a little while. Really? Okay. Yeah. Huh. Oh, I interviewed the same guy again. Uh, he had made a movie about Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, yeah. Called Hitchcock, the one with, uh, you know, Anthony Hopkins in it. Right. And he said, like, one of the things that surprised him was that uh, when they were casting the movie, you know, Anthony Hopkins wanted to talk to him. And he said, like, asked him about what other stuff he'd done, and he mentioned some of the movies he's written. He said, oh, and I also did this documentary about this uh, band, Anvil. I said, oh, that was really good. <laughs> How are those guys? <laughs> Anthony Hopkins asked that? Yes, he said, oh, and, yeah, he said like, Anthony Hopkins said he'd really liked the movie, and he really wanted to know how they were good. doing. And oh. he really, you know, and I think for a lot of people in show business, I think they, they can relate to that because, yeah. you know, they're... I think there are very, very few people who become a huge success right out of the box. I mean, yeah. most people go through a period where they're really, really struggling, so I think they can appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Um, okay, last uh, two two questions, last two. Favorite song okay. of all time? What's your favorite song of all time? Favorite number one? I'm going to say uh, You're Going to Miss Me by the 13th Floor Elevators. Oh, okay. That's a... Uh... Well, I, I know it's a, it's kind of an oddball choice, but I'm sorry. That's just one of those songs that just really pushes my buttons. Also, I've been in uh, a couple of bands where we've covered that, and for whatever reason, there is no other song I enjoy to sing more than that. Huh. That's <laughs> great. It's just fun to bellow along with that. I mean, I I cannot approach what Rookie Erickson does as yeah. a vocalist, but boy, it's fun to try. It is so, uh, the, I laughed a little when you said that because before I was getting ready, when I was getting ready to talk to you, I was sitting at my desk and I had music on to kind of put me in the mood while I'm going over my notes. And because I knew you were a Velvet Underground fan, I put on Oh Sweet Nothing by the Velvet yeah. Underground. And I and I specifically put on the version that's on the High Fidelity soundtrack because it yeah. was a little longer. And that's where I heard first heard the 13 Floor Elevator song that you just mentioned was on the High Fidelity soundtrack. So uh, it, it is on there, right? That's the one. That, oh, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. One, I think that's one of the first songs that's yeah. played in the movie. Yeah. So that's uh, it's just it's so funny that you would say that because that's uh, I was there mentally with you right before we started talking. Um, <laughs> my uh, my favorite song of all time is As by Stevie Wonder. And um I uh, I don't I don't we haven't even really talked about R and B. Do you like R and B? Do you like Earth, Wind, and Fire? Do you like 
Marvin Gaye. You probably everyone likes Marvin Gaye and Aretha Franklin. Oh yeah, easy. of course. Yeah. But do you? Yeah, like- there's a lot of um, you know. I think well, part of it, of course, when I end up discussing a lot of my stuff, I don't write about R and B that much. So mm-hmm. um, there is, but uh, yeah, I really there's a lot of it that I love, particularly sixties uh, and seventies, you know, soul mm-hmm. and R and B stuff. Like yeah, I love you know. I love Smokey Robinson. I love The Temptations. Yeah. Really love James Brown. Um, like later on, like you know George Clinton stuff you know, with Parliament and Funkadelic. Mm-hmm. That is always fun and interesting. Um, uh, I think the Ohio Players are kind of mm-hmm. underrated. They were mm-hmm. a killer funk band. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my brother-in-law once cleaned out their tour bus. <laughs> really? Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. See, what he found. He, when he was in high school, he was living in Dayton, and he and a buddy of his. They were just going to door door to door uh, during the summer, just you know, doing odd jobs to just to make bucks and mm-hmm. make a few bucks. And uh, he said, like this, uh, you know, large African American gentleman uh, in a bathrobe answers the door and says, like, uh, "Hi, do you have any errands you like to run? Like your car washed or your uh, lawn uh, trimmed or anything like that?" And the guy says, "Huh, follow me." And he said, like, he goes to the you know, walks around to the back of the house. And there's this tour bus there, <laughs> and wow. it turns out, yeah, that you know he was uh, he was one of the main guys in the Ohio Players, and when they weren't on the road, they parked the bus at his place. So uh, uh, he said, yeah, they they cleaned out uh, the inside of the tour bus, which he said he said it was absolutely hilarious because every you know pra- everything in there that wasn't like uh, in red shag carpeting was uh, like they on the walls they had put all these Playboy. Uh, you know, centerfold mm-hmm. under uh, plexiglass. There, he said it was just you know, <laughs> says total you know, totally seventies pimp ride. It was, yeah, <laughs> I but he said yeah, he was really. Oh, you know, they did that, and uh, the guy loaded him up with a whole bunch of Ohio player stuff, and Fun. you know, ate them well. And so yeah, that's, that's yeah, my, my my those are my that's my brother-in-law's two big claims to fame uh, that he uh, cleaned out the Ohio players tour bus and that he once went on a blind date with Allison Janney. Ooh, really? Yes. Allison Janney, that is great. They went out to yeah. They were both uh, they were both going to the same college at the time. So oh wow! I think basically I think he got fixed up with her because he's really tall. Oh okay, that makes sense. <laughs> I think he said they went to Taco Bell. They never went out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> On the other hand, yeah, he dated an Academy Award winner. I've never done that. So yeah, yeah I mean, no, he's got bragging rights. Right? So why not? Him. Okay. All right. Last question. Uh, yeah. You mentioned this already a little bit with Radiohead. Who does everyone like that you just don't understand? Part of me wants to say you too, but oh, I think the man. one. <laughs> I'm on. sorry. There, I, I, basically, I just like I really did like their early stuff, but it's kind of the more they went on, the more messianic Bono got. I think it just really, it really got to me. But on the other hand, if I, I've always said this: if I have to say who is the most overrated band in the world, I always have the same answer: it's the Doors. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. In, the thing they made a few albums that are really, really good, but if you listen to the most of their catalog, it's god awful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first album is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, Morrison Hotel and L.A. Woman are both really, really good. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everything else they did ranks somewhere between uh, and you yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm sorry, I don't think Jim Morrison was that great a lyricist. No. I do fully appreciate. That in a lot of ways he was very, very, you know, his approach was very, very uh, significant because there weren't a lot of people in rock and roll that was that were 
approaching um, lyrics with that kind of a poetic sensibility. Outside of Dylan, there really weren't that many people doing that. So I fully appreciate that what he was doing was groundbreaking and uh, revolutionary. I don't necessarily think that means it's good. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> I love something like uh, the exploitation filmmaker, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis, said something once that I've always thought is absolutely hilarious. He was talking about uh, his movie uh, Blood Feast, which mm -hmm. is generally considered to be the first gore movie. It was this low-budget horror movie, which is one of the first ones that really had a lot of blood and violence in it. And he said once, I've always regarded Blood Feast as something like a Walt Whitman poem. <laughs> it's not very good, but it's the first of its kind, so it really <laughs> deserves certain recognition. Right. Oh, I do great. think he's wrong about Walt Whitman, but yeah, I get what yeah. he's saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I, I fully give Jim Morrison credit for being you know a brave pioneer, but that doesn't mean that his work was very yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yep, that's uh, pretty irrefutable. I'm 100% with you on the doors. I also have a hard time listening to Janis Joplin, but that I recognize that she has maybe the greatest voice in female rock history. There's no one like it. That doesn't mean that I find it very pleasurable to listen to very often. You know what I mean? Um, it's hard I, to say. I really get that. There's, um, I think one of her problems was, I think she was a really good singer, but I also think that Unfortunately, the more histrionic she got, yeah. the more at that time people really, uh, you know, kind of really seemed to latch onto it and really encouraged her in that. I think there's like some of the, you know, I think the best of her stuff is the stuff where she kind of subdued herself a little bit because I think she legitimately was a great singer, but uh, she, uh, she unfortunately, I think, had a bad habit of uh, succumbing to uh, uh -huh. tendencies of really, you know, just overacting because yeah. a lot of her audience seemed to like that. Yeah, I could see that. Um, as far as more current bands go, the one that kind of baffles me is Wilco. And I know they're a critic starling as well. I liked them a lot at first. A buddy of mine in college gave me a copy of Being There and I loved it. And I was really into it and thinking I'm I'm on board with this band. And I didn't like Yankee Ho Hotel Foxtrot. I took the side of the record label on that one. And it's continuously just gotten more and more boring to me it's dad rock it's just uh now every every well, now and then with the sun, so of course it's dad rock. it is he dad rock perfect dad you're rock. right <laughs> yes you're right i just hear there is nothing it never amps up it never touches any kind of emotion there's no epic quality to it that makes you want makes your soul stir or anything it is just as straightforward blah beige rock as i can imagine now and uh I've just lot. I don't understand the appeal of Wilco. So, anyway, um, you're not saying anything, which means you either you probably want to argue with me on that. I don't want to argue with you, but they are one of my favorite bands. I had a but, feeling. No, I there, really, it is. I, there it I'm is. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you're not the first one of my friends who like uh, who's. You know, I have several friends whose taste I respect that can't stand Wilco. I mean, I you know to a certain degree, does it just smell? You know, I, I kind of get what people are saying because definitely the band has evolved radically over the course of their career. I mean, well, I was, you know, I was a big Jeff Tweedy fan way back when he was in Uncle Tupelo because I, mm -hmm. I uh, saw them in Ann Arbor after uh, their first album came out. And God, what a great live band they were. Mm -hmm. Really, you know, just really, really tight and really powerful. And, you know, I, as a fan, I go way, way back with him. And, you know, it's, 
like I said, he's really kind of gone in an awful lot of di- uh, directions, and some of them I have more patience for than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, I do think he's... Uh, his, his recent solo album, I think... Actually, I really recommend that to people. I know a lot of people haven't really cared for the last few Wilco albums that have really enjoyed that one. I think it's a really that's a really stronger batch of songs than he's had in a while. Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay. you know, I mean, you know, there's, you know, some of the albums are better than others, but on the other hand, any band that can make, you know, an album like, uh, you know, Being There or uh, The mm-hmm. Whole Love, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know I'm, I'm, on, I'm on board, you know. Yeah. I, you know, okay. let me put it this way. He's like, it's, you know, I think one of my very, very favorite artists, one that's always meant an enormous amount to me, is Elvis Costello. Mm-hmm. And God, you know, it, it's pretty hard to mm-hmm. follow that guy that long and not kind of get a little tired of mm-hmm. uh, the various, you know, mm-hmm. creative detours he puts himself through. And, uh, no. you know, I, I fully understand, and to a certain degree, uh, to a certain, you know, and agree with uh, some of my friends say, I just wish you would make a rock and roll album again. Yeah, but, yeah. You, know, you know, yeah, I've fallen in and out of love people, like, you know, that so many they, times. I, you know, I think sometimes maybe I'm just kind of a victim of my own loyalties. Mm, or something. Probably. If somebody really, really makes enough of an impact on me, it takes me a while to, like, you know, yeah. decide, okay, they're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, I thought of one more, though. Guilty pleasure. Do you have a guilty pleasure? What's your favorite thing that, are you a big, like, Debbie Gibson fan? What's the thing that would, that you would, that would veto your rock critic card if everyone knew one of my biggest guilty pleasures is kind of you know really lame white bread folk music from the uh late 50s to early 60s you know stuff like the kingston trio Mm -hmm. and the chad mitchell trio things like that i mean there's just something about you know painfully earnest uh young men in uh, letter sweaters mm-hmm. who are singing uh, really painfully overwrought versions of uh, Pete Seeger songs that uh, I'm sorry, I find it remarkably entertaining and mm-hmm. I can't justify it. Mm. Good answer. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah, like okay. every once in a while, like, you, you know, I think I, I write a pretty, I write about a pretty eclectic variety of stuff um, for uh, TiVo. I, my ex-wife once uh, joked, you know, about when I brought some stuff home uh, for reviews. Says, you know, Mark, I think they have a box where it's just like, who's going to review this? <laughs> eh, give it to Deming. Nobody else can figure out. What you do. <laughs> I think that That's was. Good. I think that was the week I brought home. Uh, let me see. A uh, let me see. I think there was a. Uh, it was. I think it was a collection of Canadian psychedelic bands from the mm. '60s. A uh, album of Theodore Bakel singing Russian folk songs <laughs> and uh, a spoken word album from Wallace Shawn. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, basically you get this because, <laughs> you know, every wow. once in a while it's like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> hey, have Mikey try it. He likes yeah. anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's great. But, you know, there's just but every once in a while I get something like that, you know, and uh I'm sorry. I find them endlessly entertaining. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm probably the only person that the first time you saw it didn't like though, uh, Inside Lewin Davis because I was really hoping for more, you know, like <laughs> Greenwich Village folk stuff. 
Oh my god! Yeah, I was hoping they were going to make it was going to be like the Cohen version, you know, Cohen Brothers version of uh, A Mighty Wind. And, uh-huh. you know, the first time I saw it, I was really disappointed because <laughs> it was, that's not what it is. They're spending all this time with a cat. Oh, Although the that's cat great. gives a more engaging performance than most of the people. But oh, that's great. Okay, good. Well, I don't even know how to answer. Also, Guilty for pleasure. the record, though, I, I you know, like I didn't really like it that much first time I saw it. Um, somebody gave me a DVD of it, so I watched Lewin Davis again, and actually I found it. it's a much better movie on the second list. Really? Second okay, movie. I saw it the first time in the theater, and I haven't seen it since, and I thought it was okay, and I probably need to see it again. Okay. That was exactly my feeling. It was just one of those, eh, it seems yeah. kind of like minor Coen brothers to me. Like, the, I, I saw it again, and the second time it worked a lot better for me. You okay, know? okay. I don't, you know, you know, don't rearrange your life over it, but yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, the library has a copy. Take it home, give it a look. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's my advice. Okay. Well, uh, this was fun. I could do this for hours, and I'm sorry that I've kept you longer than I thought I would, but I hope it oh, was okay. Oh, that's okay. okay. So, um, well, thank you. I find music criticism so fascinating. It would have been the job that I would have wanted had the you know dice rolled differently. And so I'm fascinated by people like you who can make a living doing this kind of thing. And uh, I love to argue and get into it with people and you know, kind of dissect their dissection of rock music. So thanks for talking with me, Mark. Oh, certainly. There you have it, Mark Deming. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I know it was long, but there's nothing better than hearing guys just, you know, chew on music for a while and debate it. I need you to tell me, though. I want you guys to tell me, why do people like Neil Young and Lou Reed, who I also really like, matter more artistically than the Duran Durans and the inaccesses of the world. Why is that? Is it because Rolling Stone tells us so? Is it because people like Mark Deming tell us so? Or is it that pop music artistically doesn't matter as much as challenging, avant-garde, potentially uh, combative rock and roll does? You know what I mean? Why does one matter and the other doesn't? I don't understand that. To me, if you're making something that's pleasant to listen to and the masses enjoy and there's some art to it, then you're on the right track. Uh, Anyway, I need you guys to explain this to me. Maybe I'm way off base. Now, uh, Mark wanted to close it out with another one of his fifth pick. This is Factory Belt by Uncle Tupelo. Of course it is, right? Based on the conversation we just had. Now, in a few days, we're going to be putting out a very special bonus episode with a very special guest. We have already featured this guy's band on here with another member, and it's one of our most popular episodes. You guys loved this episode. Now, I'm putting out a... This one is a bonus app because this one's a little more promotional in nature, I think you'll find, once you hear it. But uh, you will not want to miss this. He discusses, anyway, I'll leave it, I probably shouldn't say too much, but you're going to want to hear this because we all love this person and this person's music, I guarantee it. Uh, next week is another producer. We all love the producer episodes. Now, it's not a home, It's not a household name like Rupert Hine or Ron Nevison, but the guy has done a lot of stuff that you know, I guarantee it. And we love the, the uh, producer conversation, so come back for that one as well. A huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you got, you do. You guys know how to find us on Facebook by now. You can like our page. You can send us a message at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Okay? we got a lot going on. We'll talk to you all soon.